What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we would love to get that question answered for you on today's program. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Are you listening to us in... uh, I don't know, Australia? Are you listening in Rome? Are you listening in New Zealand? Well, we've got a special phone number just for you. 1-205-271-2985. And of course, you can always uh, shoot us an email if you'd prefer that. The address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. The clear advantage is you can do that whenever you want. You might uh, think of something at 2 in the morning, shoot us an email. We just might answer it on that same day. You just never know. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you have a question uh, that you'd like to post via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just uh, put that question of yours in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He will shoot it to us here in the studio. Hopefully we can answer it on today's program. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? You know, the voice is just a little bit less crackly. Well, good. So there's there's an advantage there. It's a it's a slow recovery. Fantastic. Everybody get your RSV shots. Don't do what I didn't do. All right. Here's an interesting question that we received from Venus via Facebook. Now, this actually came in yesterday. Hopefully, Venus is listening today. Venus says, I am not a Catholic because of too much bowing down to images, too much idolatry. You Catholics have infused too much of the ancient Romans' image worshiping into Christianity. Mary died and will resurrect on the last day. Only Jesus Christ resurrected, not his mother. But you pray to Mary. Again, that's from Venus. A lot of stuff there. Thank you, Venus. I appreciate the questions. Well, they're not really questions. They're objections. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. multiple objections. Let me tackle them one at a time. The last one I think I'll tackle first. And this is the, the indignant reflection that Catholics pray to Mary. Guilty as charged. We certainly pray to Mary. Why is that a problem? Many Protestants consider prayer to Mary or the saints to be a problem because they equate prayer with worship, and they assume that if you are praying to someone, you must be worshiping them. That isn't true. If you go to the court, your lawyer can address the judge saying, I pray the court to grant my client relief. Prayer just means request, petition. That's all it means. When I turn and ask my friend to intercede for me with God. I might ask Tom Price, I've got an issue coming up in my life, would you please pray for me? I am not worshiping Tom. I'm worshiping God, I'm asking Tom to pray for me. Almost every Christian that I know does this. In fact, it's commanded in the New Testament that we pray for one another, carry one another's burdens to God in prayer. St. James writes in chapter 5 of his epistle, pray for one another that you can be healed. The only difference with Catholics is that we think that 
this life of mutual intercession and prayer and charity can endure after death. Why would we think that? Because sacred scripture indicates that that is the case. Take one text in particular, Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, clearly states that the saints in heaven have the job of offering our prayers to God. That's all we're doing. Yeah. It's not worship. The, uh, the essence of worship is the offering of sacrifice. Remember when Moses said to Pharaoh, you have to let us go into the desert to worship our God, offer sacrifices to him? Sacrifice is the essential act of the virtue of religion. St. Paul says that offering your body is your spiritual act of worship, Romans chapter 12. We don't offer sacrifices to the saints. We don't offer them to the Blessed Virgin Mary. We're not slaughtering animals or even offering them the Eucharist. We do that to God alone. So it's not worship, what we do with the saints. There's too much bowing down in images, in image worship. Well, too much? How much would be okay? <laughs> Let me ask you that question. I mean, I'm, I'm a Catholic for 20 years. Uh, I will confess to having venerated images— it's, it's hardly the predominant form of spirituality in my life. I, I suppose someone could have a strong preference for it and do it a lot, but the, for me as a Catholic, the, the principal shape of my spirituality is worshiping God through the sacraments and the life of private prayer. That's the way my spiritual life is constructed, ultimately ordered towards discipleship to Jesus, the imitation of the life of Christ. To the extent that I have venerated images, it is because I wish to imitate the virtues of the archetype. So I might, for example, contemplate an image of the Blessed Virgin Mary, but it's because I want to imitate her chastity, her holiness, her charity, her virtue. Mother Angelica would refer to them as holy reminders. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. You know, I shared recently on the show that when I was a 13-year-old junior high school student, I had an image of Eddie Van Halen on my wall, not so I could offer him sacrifices, but that I could re be reminded of his stellar guitar technique, hmm. hoping to inspire myself to, to like uh, feats of musical virtuosity. That didn't work out so well for me. Right? <laughs> uh, and that's what Catholics do with images of the saints. We, they, are, they are exemplars of Christian holiness. Sacred Scripture indicates that God commanded the Israelites to make use of images in their sacred worship. I would challenge you to go read either uh, First Chronicles or Exodus uh, and the descriptions of Solomon's temple or the tabernacle that the Israelites constructed in the desert at God's command. And of course, it, they included many images that God prescribed. You must make these images, he said, images of cherubim, angels, of animals, uh, even of uh, even of produce that yeah. God commanded them to make use of in, in worship, not to offer them sacrifice, but as adornments for worship, and that's what the Catholics do. Okay, very good. Uh, Venus, thanks so much uh, for your question via Facebook. Be sure to tune in tomorrow when David plays the first 16 bars of Panama. We'll be looking forward to that, oh, won't we? Oh, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, right. In a moment, we... Remember we... Deacon Harold Burke Sivers actually doing that at, oh, yeah. at a radio banquet. He was time. fantastic. Yeah. So coming up, we've got uh, Mary in Washington that we'll be talking with. Also, Jan in Denver. Stephen driving through Illinois. Three lines open just for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. 
It's called Communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. A couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. A brand new book now available from EWTN Publishing, Rejoicing in Our Hope, Meditations for the Advent and Christmas Seasons, written by a friend of yours, David, Bishop Robert Baker. Wonderful. Fantastic. He uh, shares stories and reflections on sacred scripture, the saints, popes, other famous individuals that provide hope and inspiration for the Advent and Christmas seasons. Things like um, the prescription to keep going and the secret to finding joy. Also, the words that have the power to lead you to Christ's mercy and a special devotion to help you overcome fear and anxiety. This book is a winner. Check it out, Rejoicing in Our Hope, Meditations for the Advent and Christmas Seasons by our friend Bishop Robert Baker. It's available now from EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Beginning today with Mary in Washington, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hello, Mary. What's on your mind today? Hi. Um, I'm almost 70, and I was I am a Catholic, and I was at the mall yesterday, and I saw a young girl who was about 14, and she was wearing a satanic symbol on her cap. And I'm just wondering, how do you witness to this generation? Um, I didn't say anything because I didn't want any kind of violent reaction from the girl, but i got to say the church seems asleep. Yeah, that's a great question. It's really hard to know what the best way to discuss the faith is with a person that you don't know because you don't know them and you don't know what issues are important to them and what subjects might be touchy with them. So I personally think that getting to know people and, and friendship and asking questions and listening to them and discerning where they are in their life and what their needs are is really the best way forward with, with anybody. When it comes to actually proclaiming the gospel, I mean, the, the essentials of the gospel can always be shared, and that's Jesus Christ as the Son of God who taught us the way of salvation and died and rose again for our redemption and founded the church, which is this tremendous organ for sanctification and the and the dignifying of the human person in charity. We can share different elements of that in different ways, depending on what what's actually what can be assimilated by the person to whom we're speaking. But again, to, to be able to do that effectively, we need to kind of know something about them. So I, I, I don't do a lot in the way of public proclamation of the gospel sort of in a void without understanding my audience. I, I typically, if I want to share one-on-one with someone, I'm going to approach them in friendship and ask them about their needs and their perspective on life and and then share out of, hopefully, out of the riches of my own Catholic life, something that may be relevant to them. It's got to be tough if it's uh, somebody that you see in a mall situation. Yeah. You may only see him for 30 seconds, but you, right. can, you can certainly show the love of Jesus. Absolutely. All right. Mary, is that helpful for you? Good. Thank you very much. You are most welcome. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. Two lines open, 833 833- 288-3986. Call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Jan is listening in Denver on the great Catholic radio network. Hello, Jan. What's on your mind today? Hi. Good afternoon. I just had a question about uh, plenary indulgences. I Just one example would be um, that if we went to confession, communion, said the rosary in a group in front of the tabernacle or the, um, or the Eucharist, pray for the intentions of the Pope that Somehow this would then um, forgive us of the temp- temporal or 
the stain of sin. In other words, the ripple effect, even though we confess it and we're absolved of it, we still have sort of a restitution of that we need to uh, achieve, and this this is one way to do it. That I'm trying to understand that, Dr. Sure. So I, I think the easiest way to understand indulgences is to, if you understand something about their origin, because when you see them in context, it, it illuminates. In the ancient church, when a person would commit a public sacrilege, say apostasy was a big, a big one, or murder or adultery, really scandalous sin, the church would impose a penance upon that individual that they had to complete before they could come back to communion. And sometimes those penances could last for years. Sometimes wow. it would last until the end of the person's life. Jay. So, so we've had some, we've had penance inflation since then, and, and, <laughs> and you know now one hail mary will do. Where maybe six months of exclusion from the Eucharist would have been the case in the past. And apostasy was a big one. And in the third century, in the 250s, especially in North Africa, when the Emperor Decius instituted a massive persecution against the Church, there were some people who caved. They were apostates. They renounced the faith under persecution. There were others that were martyred, and some were put in prison. And those who were in prison but not martyred were called confessors because they had confessed the faith. Now, with the apostates, because they renounced Jesus, the Church said, well, you can't just come immediately back to communion. You have to do penance. And again, some of those penances were extremely long. But the Church also regarded the constancy and the fortitude of the confessors as intrinsically meritorious and worthy of praise. So some of the faithful who were doing penance got an idea. They said, well, I wonder if I could get me some of that righteousness, some (laughs) of that merit that the confessors have acquired, if it could be applied to my case. And so while they're languishing in prison, could they vicariously do penance on my behalf? Could their time in, in jail count for me if they were willing to dispense it to me? And you actually had, this was something that was born from the heart of the Christian faithful. It's not something that the hierarchy imposed. It was really the idea of the faithful. They would go to the confessors in prison and say, would you write out for me a writ of indulgence that states that you're willing to do penance on my behalf so you can help me bear this burden of ecclesiastical discipline so I can return to communion? And many times the confessors would do that out of charity. And so they took this to Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage, and he said, hmm, I, I, I like where you're going with this. This is a good idea. It make, theologically, it makes sense. All I ask is that the, is that the disposition of these, of these merits be left to the discretion of the church, that it not be up to the determination of the individual or yeah. the confessor, but yeah, the church yeah. has jurisdiction over mm-hmm. this. And thus was born the practice of indulgences, the idea that if I am to do penance, that someone else might actually be able to do penance vicariously on my behalf. And the saints, of course, with this storehouse of merit would be particularly effective intercessors in that regard. It didn't take long before the same idea uh, became applied to purgatory, because purgatory is just an extension of the idea of penance. It's just penance that I didn't do in this life. So I could request the indulgence of the saints on my behalf to help with temporal penance, either in this life or the next. Now, because the Church is dispensing those graces— what we settled upon was this convention that, well, in exchange for some pious practice like praying the rosary or going on a pilgrimage or reading the scriptures or whatever, the church will effectively apply the merits of the saints to your case to diminish the amount of penance that you do. 
And the rule in the church now typically is you perform whatever devotional act is being requested of you together with confession and communion and prayer for the intention of the Holy Father. A plenary indulgence is one that would remit all of the temporal punishment due to son. Oh, wow. Uh, To gain that, you need to not only perform the requisite devotion, but also have no attachment to son. So it's rather difficult subjectively to rise to that standard, but that's the standard. Very good. And uh, Jan, thank you so much uh, for your call from Denver. It's called a communion here on EWTN. couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Aaron has a related question to that. Uh, he's checking in on YouTube this afternoon. Aaron says, I've heard you must not have any attachment to sin to skip purgatory. Does that mean you would never sin in any possible situation? How practically can you tell if you are indeed detached from sin? Yeah, sure. I appreciate the question. So it doesn't require you to have perfect foreknowledge and understand that you will in fact be free of sin. That's impossible. We can't know the future and to persevere in the state of grace is beyond our power to compel. That's up to God to grant us the gift of perseverance. But in terms of what is it, what does attachment to sin look like now, or detachment from sin, we have to distinguish attachment to sin on the one hand from the wounds of original sin that may have damaged our personality on the other. According to Catholic teaching, everyone is infected with the wounds of original sin. One of those wounds is concupiscence, which means that we... Ne- we in our nature, as it's presently constituted, we have an immoderate desire for bodily pleasure. I just want to eat the third piece of pecan pie, even though I know I shouldn't, or whatever other immoderate act. But it's one thing to have that inclination where, yes, I could, I could reason—well, not reasonably, but I could believably gorge myself on three pieces of pecan pie. And I, at a certain level, I'd find that attractive. But I can tell you right now, from where I'm sitting— uh, my mother is making pecan pie for me and my whole family this weekend, and I will not eat any, wow. even though I love it, even though it's my favorite dessert. Wow. I'm not going to eat any because I, I know the price I will pay down the road <laughs> to eat pecan pie. I will feel ill, right? So I'm not going to eat any. I'm, I'm fairly <clears throat> certain of that because even though it, I understand that it is intrinsically attractive to me, that's not just just that I have a natural bodily appetite for pecan pie is not the same thing of being as being attached to the idea of doing it. I have no attachment to it in that I am determined in my will not to indulge the pecan pie, and I'm certain that I won't. I mean, I've made that resolution and kept it for many years. I haven't I haven't eaten any sugar since 2018, I think. Wow. Right, and I so I know I'm capable of not doing that because, mm-hmm. but my practical reason, my conscience is persuaded that that's not good for me and I'm not going to go along with it. Now, if there's some area of your life where you don't have that confidence, where you think, the next time I'm exposed to this temptation, yeah, I don't know that I'm going to have that kind of fortitude, that kind of constancy to resist. Well, then that's not what we're talking about, about attachment to sin. Now, here's the other thing. The, the, the more you can conform your will and habits to virtue— the, you're eventually you'll have not only continence but temperance, not only the ability to resist, but that resisting will become easier and easier until it becomes like a second nature to you. Okay, and, and look, uh, I, yes, I yes. may have that with respect to pecan pie. There are a lot of areas of my life where I don't, where it's not easy for me to stay away from sun. I mean, I'm I personally am far from holiness, but man, I got that pecan pie thing knocked away. 
Glad you got that figured out. We are personally not going to have pecan pie this this Thanksgiving. Adrienne is making, she's got this terrific recipe for coffee flan. Oh, you're killing me now. Can you imagine that? You're killing me with coffee flan. Good stuff. Aaron, thanks so much uh, for checking in on YouTube this afternoon. Call to communion here on EWTN. A couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to Stephen now. Stephen's a first-time caller driving through Illinois, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Stephen, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, thank you for taking my call. I've been a, uh, I'm a uh, lifetime Catholic, and I always was taught of the Trinity, uh, three persons in, the, in, in God, and I've always accepted that. But now that I've been uh, looking into it a little bit further, I know there's God the Father, and we look at him as, as a type of, as a, as a person. He's really a spirit, I think. And there's Jesus, of course, who is made man. But what about the Holy Spirit? Is he a spirit, a man? Is he a relationship between God's Father and God the Son? Who is or what is the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I appreciate the question. Thank you so much. So, with the persons of the Trinity, what the Church says about them is that they are all persons. Person does not mean man. Person does not mean man. And so one of the persons of the Trinity assumed a human nature and was born as a man, that would be Jesus Christ. But insofar as the second person of the Trinity can be thought of abstracted from the question of the Incarnation, we wouldn't refer to the second person as a man, uh, and nor would we refer to the Father or the Spirit as a man. God is a spirit. God is not a man. And the only way we can talk about the personhood of the individuals within the Blessed Trinity is in terms of their relation to one another. So when you ask yourself the question, what does it mean to be a person? Well, it means a lot of things to us. Our embodied existence is part of it. But but what enables us to mark out our personality, as it were, is our relatedness to our society, the way we think about ourselves, other people. It's all about the question of relation abstract away everything human from the question of God and leave only the distinction of relationship. And that's what we mean when we talk about person with respect to God. We mean that God the Father is Father insofar as he is related by paternity to the Son. The Son is the Son insofar as he is related by filiation to the Father. Uh, The Spirit is related to Father and Son in another mode that we call spiration. Right? That is simply the mode proper to the Holy Spirit. We know very little about, if you will, the ontology, the, the essential nature of the Holy Spirit as such, uh, because the term spiration is more remote from our experience. And we speak about God with analogy. So paternity, we know something about. Filiation, we know something about. But what is spiration? We're more obscure on that. But mm. he is a person, insofar as the Father and Son are persons. And they're persons with respect to one another by way of relation. Well, uh, Stephen, we hope that is helpful for you. Thank you so much for your call. Uh, be, be careful out there as you're driving through Illinois. In a moment, we're going to get back to the phones. We'll be talking with uh, Randy 
a first-time caller in Oklahoma City. Also, Nancy in Canton, Michigan, listening on the great Ave Maria radio. We're also going to grab a question, a very interesting one from Teresa, watching us on Facebook this afternoon. And we'll get a question from Julie, a first-time caller from Iowa. couple lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's called to communion on this uh, Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, maybe you'd like to uh, explain to us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic yourself. 833-288-3986. Our friends at Siouxland Catholic Radio in Iowa need to hear from you next week. They're going to be airing their Advent Pledge Drive next Tuesday through Thursday. So if you're listening in Sioux City or Storm Lake or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic Radio station. They do need to uh, hear from you. Got to pay those bills, pay the electric bill, pay the internet bill, all that stuff, so that we can continue to spread the good news 24-7, not only to you, but to to all your friends and uh, people you'll never meet on this side of the veil. Let's go now to Nancy, a first-time caller in Canton, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Nancy, what's on your mind today? Hi, good afternoon, Dr. Andrews. So our son is um, marrying an absolutely lovely young woman um, next summer, and uh, she is Catholic. Um, our son has been raised Lutheran. They're getting married in the Catholic Church. And I'm just curious, um, what is the stance of the Catholic Church when a, a Catholic is marrying um, a Lutheran in the Catholic Church? Yeah, thanks. So if they're marrying in the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church would regard their marriage as a valid marriage and also as a sacrament. And that is a difference with Lutherans. Uh, historic Lutheranism does not regard marriage as a sacrament. Uh, but typically only thinks in terms of the sacraments of, of the Eucharist and baptism. Catholics think that marriage is also a sacrament, that is to say, a sacred sign that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring about the reality that is signified. And as St. Paul says, that marriage is a sign of Christ's union with the Church, that in Christian marriage, that is figured in the love and sacrifice that the spouses have for one another, and empowered by a supernatural grace that enables them to live that vocation worthily and witness to the reality of Christ in the world through uh, raising up children and and developing what we call the domestic church. So uh, the fact that one party is Lutheran, as long as both parties are baptized and validly married, the church regards any valid marriage of two baptized people as a sacrament. So it's a wonderful thing. We celebrate it, and congratulations. Is that helpful for you, Nancy? Um, it was. So you did mention ra- the raising of children, and I, I know they plan to have children at some point. Um, what, is the, what is the stance of the Catholic Church once children enter the, you know, the picture? Sure. So as it happens, in order to have a valid marriage, one must at least be open to life. If you, if you enter into the state of marriage and say, I will categorically refuse to ever have children— the Church says that's not a valid marriage. So while not everyone will be blessed with children, 
at least an openness to children, is intrinsic to what the marriage vow is all about. And so children are sort of the natural fulfillment and culmination of the marriage vow and the creation of this domestic church. Children that are born to uh, Christian parents in a sacramental marriage in the domestic church are at a great advantage, obviously. Uh, They also come into the world with original sin or in in need of baptism, but if they're baptized, they are Christians themselves, and they have this great benefit of being raised in the nurture of this Christian community called the family. Nancy, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much, and uh, congratulations to you as well. Here's Julie now, a first-time caller in Iowa, listening on the great Iowa Catholic Radio. Julie, what's on your mind today? Hi, thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I was calling in regards to Mary on the memorial presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary today, and I had a question about Mass. I had gone there early today, and at, during the Eucharistic prayer, I believe they said something about forgiving Mary's sins. And I've always been taught that she was born without original sin, so therefore she didn't have concupiscence, the natural desire to sin. So... Did she sin, or did I just not hear it correctly? <laughs> nope, she did not sin, uh, and I would love to see the preface to the Eucharistic prayer. I'm going to have to look it up and see if I can figure out what was going on there, but I assure you there was no reference in the Eucharistic prayer or the preface to the Eucharistic prayer referencing uh, Mary standing in need of forgiveness. Perhaps you, you may find something about Mary being saved, because we do teach that Mary was saved, but she was saved by being preserved from original sin and actual sin. All right. And uh, Julie, thank you so much uh, for your call. As long as we're on the subject now of the uh, Feast of the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is today, got this question from Teresa watching us on Facebook this afternoon. Teresa says, in the Old Testament, Hannah dedicated her son Samuel to God and took him to live in the temple. On this Feast of the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, ancient tradition suggests Mary was also presented in the Temple of Jerusalem at a young age and lived there in dedication to God. I would like to know what life was like for them to live in the temple without their parents. Um, Yes, so I really appreciate the question. There are a few things we can imagine about what life in the temple would be like, but interestingly, the the Old Testament is actually pretty quiet on the specifics of how the temple functioned administratively, uh, and the sacrifices as well are, are named but not explicitly described. So you kind of have to go outside the text to get a sense of what was going on there. <clears throat> there was a lot of work to do in the temple uh, and, uh, and the tabernacle. There, there were places of animal sacrifice, and so worshipers would have come on a daily basis to bring their animals to offer and sacrifice, the priest's job was to offer them, and then there were prescribed rituals for the way you had to slaughter the meat and serve it out to different parties, and so there would have been a lot of cleanup to to Mm. do, and there were also lamps that had to be kept trimmed and filled and sweeping and cooking and cleaning out and all the normal tasks that you would associate with life, and so Samuel or any other uh, temple attendant would have to handle those kinds of things. Okay. And, uh, Teresa, thanks so much for your question via uh, Facebook this afternoon. Call to communion here on EWTN. Still time to get in your call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Randy is a first-time caller in Oklahoma City, listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Hello, Randy. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Good afternoon. Thank you for taking the call. I'm apologize. I certainly don't mean to be hurtful or anything. I'm not the best speaker and put words together. But um, I have a problem with 
listening to uh, the broadcast. I drive a lot on my job. It's the number one place where I am now getting my um, devotions and inspiration from is from Catholic radio. I'm not a Catholic, but I'm a devout, immature, sinful, saved-by-grace Christian. So when you, and you've talked about this many times, that the Catholic Church was the one church started by Jesus. And I don't understand that in my ignorance, because the uh, emperor just declared we're all going to be Catholics at some point, one of the history times, and thus the Catholic Church was perceived, in, in, in my knowledge. So where does it say, Jesus says, this is the Catholic Church? Peter, I'm giving you the Catholic Church to build it on. Yeah, thanks. So, first of all, with respect to the Roman emperor, I don't know which Roman emperor you're referring to. I think Constantine, but, but, I think. But there, there, there was a Roman emperor that made Christianity the obligatory religion of the empire. It wasn't Constantine, it was the- Theodosius. Oh, okay, you know, Several okay. decades later. Right. Uh, but in, in order even to even to prescribe Catholicism as the religion of the empire, there had to be an antecedent Catholicism to prescribe. Like, you can't, you can't insist that everyone practice a religion that doesn't yet exist. Right, right. right. So, so Christianity, and Catholicism in particular, had been around for coming up on four centuries by the time it actually became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And when Constantine ascended to the throne of the Roman Empire... Uh, he became a Catholic, he became a Christian, he received baptism at the hands of Catholic bishops who had already been in apostolic succession. They stood in the succession to bishops that, that went back for 300 years. So he didn't invent the Catholic Church, uh, he became a member of the Catholic Church that had been around for several centuries. In terms of the claim, where does Jesus state that the Catholic Church is the Church that he founded? So the, the word Catholic means universal, and what is implied by that statement is the idea that Christ established a singular institution with a determinate body of theological doctrine and a determinate form of worship and moral life united as a single fellowship that would be spread throughout the world. That's what the word Catholic means. All those elements are implied by the word Catholic. One visible society united in faith and worship with a you know, particular form of governance uh, spread throughout the world. Now, if you can find that in the Bible, then you have, in substance, what we mean by Catholic. The word Catholic wasn't used with reference to that institution until the early 2nd century by a Catholic bishop named Ignatius of Antioch, right around 100 or maybe 110 A.D. That's when the word is first used. But the reality itself existed before that. So, uh, of course, you already mentioned Jesus's words to St. Peter when he said, thou art Peter. Peter, of course, means rock, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What do you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What do you loose on earth is loose in heaven. So Christ's intent to establish a church manifests there in the gospel of Matthew chapter 16. Also in Matthew 18, what do you bind on earth is bound in heaven. And Matthew 28, when he says to all of the disciples, the 11 that are left, Go into all nations, uh, uh, make disciples, teaching them everything I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I will be with you to the end of the age. So attend carefully to what Jesus says. He, he establishes 
authorized individuals, namely the apostles, entrusts to them a body of content of doctrinal teaching, namely what I have commanded you, gives them a charge to take it catholicly, if you will, to all the nations, make disciples of all the nations, with a promise of divine assistance. I will be with you until the end of the age. So the, the Catholicity of, its, of the Church, its foundation in and by the 11 apostles, the common body of teaching, and the universal scope are all there in the commission of Christ to the apostles in Matthew 28. As you keep reading in the New Testament, a really wonderful instance of this, an illustration of this, exemplar of this, is Acts chapter 15, when there is a disagreement in the nascent church about a matter of doctrine and practice, and so the apostles and the elders gather together in council in Jerusalem and give out an authoritative ruling that's understood to be binding on the entire Christian world. That's Catholic. That's, that's what Catholic means, that you have this authority structure and a, and a determinate body of discipline and practice and, and belief that is of necessity imposed on every Christian. That's what the word Catholic means. Um, we in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Paul gives instructions about propriety in Christian worship. And he says, if anyone has another practice, well, excuse me, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, about my ruling, know, he says, that we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. You see, he points to the Catholicity of the practice, its universal acceptance by all the individual congregations, as evidence for its authority. Again, that's the principle of Catholicity. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That the Catholic Church would be united in governance by the episcopacy, by the bishops, is not only implied by Christ's commission in Matthew 28, but it's explicitly stated in the pastoral epistles. When Paul says to Titus, for example, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might appoint presbyters in every church as I have instructed you and mm. those that are capable of handing this ministry on to the next generation. Acts chapter 14, we read that the apostles appointed presbyters in each of the churches that they established. So you have Christ sending the apostles, the apostles ordaining and sending and authorizing their successors, the bishops, and then that line of succession continues down to the present day. So the, the substance of Catholicism is there in the teaching of Christ from the beginning. There was always dissension. There were always people who were interested in the person of Jesus but who separated from the fellowship of the church as established by Christ and, and went off and did something different. The New Testament is filled with evidence of diversity in early Christianity, uh, sometimes against apostolic authority, off, well, always against apostolic authority. The whole book of Third John, for example, is written against a schismatic bishop named Diotrephes, who we are told loved to be first and didn't want to acknowledge John the Apostle. That sort of thing has always gone on. But in, in order to dissent, there has to be something for you to dissent from. Sure, sure. And that would be the Orthodox faith. Is that uh, helpful for you, Randy? That is extremely deep. I'm writing notes as fast as I can. If I just may make comments just to yeah. summarize my head, the Catholic or universal document of theologic doctrine is what was taught by Jesus then. But did the disciples... When the eleven went out, as you said, were they teaching the same type of Catholic doctrines, the sacraments, the et cetera, that is uh, unusual to me? Uh, were they teaching that as they went? Sure, 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 sure. So let me draw a couple of distinctions here. In Catholic faith, we we differentiate 
doctrine uh, according to a hierarchy of truths. Now, to talk about a hierarchy of truths does not mean that some truth is more true than another true. Every truth is true by definition. Sure. But some are more central to our identity as Christians than others. What is the most central truth of the Christian faith but the existence of God, the divine nature, the Trinity, the incarnation of Christ, Jesus' establishment of the Church, his sending of the apostles, our communion in the Holy Spirit, the life of the sacraments, these things are all very central to Christian identity. All of those elements were there from the very beginning. Now, over the centuries, as controversies emerge, it becomes necessary for the Church to speak about these mysteries with greater precision, to make some specifications, to, to, to add some definite content to things that may only have been understood implicitly before. A good example of that would be the doctrine of the Trinity. So Scripture says there is but one God. It also shows us that the Father is not the Son, but that the Son is in some respect God. How do those truths hang together? How do they cohere with one another? The answer to that question wasn't fully worked out until the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea, when the Church formally taught the doctrine of the Trinity. But you see how the essence of the Trinity, the substance of the Trinity, was implicit in the data of Revelation early on, but it becomes more explicit under controversy later on. Did the apostles use the word Trinity? No. I'm sure they didn't, but they taught the unity of God and the divinity of the Son. Mm -hmm. So they taught the substance without the specifications. And so as you move through Catholic history, there are embellishments and details and specifications and controversies that emerge over the centuries. Looking back over 2,000 years, we can see all of that is part of the patrimony of Catholic tradition, but it's unfolding the way a plant will unfold from a seed. Okay. Randy, a couple of great questions there. Thank you so much. And uh, you may want to check out the podcast of this program. It's available at EWTN's Podcast Central. You can go to EWTN.com, click on radio, and then look for the word podcast. Uh, Charles will have that posted for you in just a couple hours here. Also available right now on EWTN's Podcast Central is uh, a great podcast from author Joseph Pierce, which is called The Authority. And uh, in the latest episode of The Authority, Joseph discusses Charles Dickens, one of the most famous authors the world has ever known. Joseph says the secret of Dickens' massive success lies in his love, reverence, and deference to the dignity of the human person. Do check out Pos Podcast Central and that episode called The Authority by, uh, by again going to EWTN.com forward slash radio, and then click on the word podcast. Do check that out. Before we go back to the phones, just heard from Father Bill Fox checking in on YouTube this afternoon. Father Bill says, The presentation of Our Lady is not found in our scriptures, but it is found in the Quran. I always found that interesting. Um, yes, that is interesting. And, you know, I, I haven't looked a lot into the textual origins of this tradition, but my my guess is that it is a tradition that is probably more widespread in some areas of the ancient Roman world than others, uh, and probably okay. those areas that are associated with the growth of Islam, which is why early Muslim thinkers picked it up from Christian culture in other parts of the empire. They didn't 
Okay. Father Fox, thanks for checking in. Always glad to hear from uh, clergy on this program and all of our programs here on EWTN. Gina is a first-time caller in Jackson, Mississippi, listening on WJXC. Hey there, Gina. What's on your mind today? Well, I was wanting to revisit a topic that y'all were discussing yesterday. Um, Y'all were talking about the fact that um, nowhere in the Bible does it say that God forgets our sins. And I don't know who it was that was speaking, but whoever it was said to think that God would forget our sins would be ludicrous, and and that he doesn't. But I'm finding scripture that says he remembers our sins no more. And I was really just wanting to hear your perspective on that. There was a scripture in Hebrews um, 8.12 and then Isaiah 43.25. Both of those clearly says, that he remembers our sins no more. Sure. Yeah, so thanks. I, I appreciate that. So I personally don't remember ever saying on this radio show that God can't forget our sins or didn't forget our sins. I don't think I ever said any such thing. So I, I don't know who did, but that, I don't think it was me. And as you correctly note, many places in Scripture that talk about remembering our sins no more, that our sins are wiped away through the death of Christ and our contrition and repentance and we're restored to fellowship with God, and what's done in the past stays in the past, and God doesn't ever bring it up again. Now, if you want to get really technical about it, if you want to get really technical, we when we use language about God, and that includes the language that Scripture uses about God, Scripture and humans will speak of God as if God had human attributes, and that tendency is called anthropomorphism. And it's understandable because our language is drawn from our embodied experience. And so when we want to talk about having something from the past utterly obliterated and wiped away, the language of forgetfulness is an appropriate metaphor to use. Mm, But if we want to get really scientific about the nature of God, God doesn't change. God doesn't change. And so when a human is forgetful, I don't know enough about the the neurobiology of memory, but presumably it's possible for a memory to be effaced from from my brain. Well, God doesn't have a brain. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like so yeah, yeah. so the, the 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 biological, the psychobiological fact of remembrance is something that wouldn't we wouldn't strictly predicate of God because God's not a human being subject to the same kinds of limitations that a person is. But we could very appropriately say that God forgets in the sense that our sins are taken out of the equation and are no longer at issue with respect to our fellowship with him. Is that helpful for you, Gina? Yeah, it's helpful. I just, um, I wish I knew who said that yesterday, because he even said something like, I don't know why people say that. It may be something Ben Franklin said. So I don't know who said it. it Ben Franklin, not a great Catholic theologian. Probably not, yeah. Uh, Gina, thanks so much for your call. Armando's watching on YouTube this afternoon. Armando says, Dr. Anders, what is a papal bull? And is it true that a pope issued a bull against cats, especially a black cat? Thank you. Um, Yeah, so a papal bull is a form of papal pronouncement. It's just a format in which a 
papal declaration is issued, and it used to be the standard way that papal pronouncements were issued. Now we have all kinds of papal pronouncements that fall into different categories and are issued for different purposes, but a bull was just the typical form that the word bull comes from the Latin. It has to do with the nature of the seal. So he would make the document that mm-hmm. would be sealed with the Pope's seal, and that was called mm-hmm. a bull, right? Um, my understanding is that there was a medieval pope who didn't issue a, a papal bull against cats, but he wrote a papal bull in which cats came into the discussion and were linked with the practice of Satanism and witchcraft. And and so that, you know, led to that, or it helped foment that association. Uh, sure. Now. I haven't studied this issue in depth, and so what I say now is going to be purely speculative. It's what I would expect to find if I went and did the research, but I'd have to do the research to substantiate it. Uh, belief in witch in witches is universal across human culture. It's not something that is unique to to medieval Christendom. Every every society has some form of witchcraft in its lore. And I'm sure you're aware that at different periods of history and instability that witch hysteria can can wax or wane. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we, we have had periods of witch hysteria in, in the Western world, including under the domain of the church. And there have been persecutions against people that were purported to be witches and this kind of thing. So it's, it's a regrettable part of our past, but it does exist. And, and popes are human beings who are themselves subject to the same kinds of limitations and prejudices and superstitions that would abound in their age. And so if there was a popular superstition in the 13th century linking uh, witches with with cats as familiars, and that was taken as one of those things that all people of good sense in the 13th century just knew to be true, it wouldn't surprise me if if the Pope would make an offhanded comment that assumed the truth of that stereotype. Hmm. Um, so again, that's that's the best I can do. Yes, there was a Pope. Yes, he issued a papal bull. I don't remember what the subject of the bull was about, but there was a reference to cats associating them with with witches as familiars. Probably not putting too much stock in all that. I'm not putting a lot of stock in it at all. All right, Armando, what a great way to close out this question, this uh, program here called to communion. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio. Uh, that program airs for you each weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern. You can check that out uh, uh, on the West Coast at 8 p.m. for you. Uh, you can also check out, as we said earlier, EWTN's Podcast Central, where you'll find the recording of today's program and all of our programs by going to EWTN, EWTN.com forward slash radio. Click on the word podcast. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. Back at it tomorrow at the same time for another edition of Call to Communion. Have a wonderful day and we will see you then. God bless. God bless.